Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And the text for this morning will be from verses 13 to 17. Please follow with me as I read. Uh, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let us go to God in prayer again. Father, for this coming hour, we pray that by your Spirit, you will prepare our hearts to receive your word that leads to everlasting life, and open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your living word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Literary devices are techniques that writers use to express ideas in more colourful ways. For example, metaphor is a common literary device whereby two objects, often unrelated, are compared to each other. Michael has three trunks for his arm. Another literary device is paradox. So for the children in the room, you may ask, what is a paradox? Paradox is a statement that at first seems contradictory, but on further thinking, it would make sense. Here's an example of paradox from a popular Pixar movie, The Incredibles. When everyone is special, no one is. Another example from a popular from a well-known playwright, George Bernard Shaw, youth is wasted on the young. Apostle Paul used paradox to describe the Christian life in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Let's pause here and think of the phrase, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Can sadness and joy coexist at the same time in your heart? The world may think that it is impossible to cry and to laugh at the same time. So what is Paul saying? I think he's saying that while we have countless reasons for our hearts to be sorrowful, in all these reasons, there is none that can stop us from rejoicing in God. We have just celebrated Easter last week. And if you think about it, the cross or crucifixion of our Lord Jesus can be considered as the paradox of paradoxes. It is the most horrific event in human history. The crucifixion of a guiltless, perfect man, and yet, it is also the most beautiful event in the history because of the resurrection of Jesus. 
the saddest and happiest moment in time came together at a singular event, the death of a man on a tree. The event on Calvary is called Good Friday because of Easter Sunday. So in our passage this morning, we have three paradoxes of Christian life. And my aim for this morning is to share with you lessons from unjust suffering or the paradoxes of unjust suffering. And for those who are taking notes, these are the three paradoxes. First, blessings in suffering. Second, fight fear with fear. And thirdly, finding yourself by losing yourself. Let's start with the first paradox, blessings in suffering. We have no difficulty understanding suffering as a consequence of sin, since the Bible tells us that death has entered into our world due to the fall. Suffering is the result of sin. And on the other hand, we understand very well that blessings come when we obey God. However, it is difficult for us to comprehend how suffering can happen when you do good. We call this unjust suffering, and it has been used as a reason for many to not believe in God or even deny the very existence of God. In our passage today, Peter is actually making a concise case for a reason for unjust suffering. There is blessings in suffering. Just listen as I read again. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It is generally true that no one will harm us if we do good, not even our enemies, according to Proverbs. Proverbs 16 when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But should suffering happen when we do good, we can take comfort that it is God's will for us to go through suffering. We need to remember, Christians, that God does not let his children suffer for suffering's sake alone, but his will is that we would choose to obey him rather than to avoid suffering, because obedience is the pathway to blessings, even at the cost of suffering. Now, before I answer the question, what are the blessings we receive when we suffer unjustly, it is important for us to understand what suffering for righteousness' sake is. It is interesting that Peter pronounced blessings to his reader twice in this letter once in our passage and the other in chapter 4, verse 14. And on both occasions, they are in the context of suffering. It is very likely that Peter was recalling Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it is important for us to understand what suffering or persecuted for righteousness' sake is in order to receive God's blessing. And since Peter wrote in verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, I take it that doing good and righteousness 
refer to the same thing. So let me start by stating what suffering for righteousness' sake is not. In other words, not all suffering that we endure or experience as Christians can be called suffering for righteousness' sake. It is not suffering for righteousness' sake um, when we as Christians act foolishly or when we sin. Peter has already mentioned earlier in chapter 2 that there is no benefit or credit when we endure suffering due to our own sins. So we can bring about needless suffering in our lives when we do not understand the difference between being offensive due to our mannerism or personality and causing offence because of our godly behaviours. Let me give you an example, and this is purely hypothetical because I'm sure none of you will do this. Okay, for example, we are not suffering for righteousness' sake when we are shunned by our neighbours or we have to pay our homeowners association fine for blaring loud songs from Christian radio early Saturday morning. And you do it week in and week out. So that is not suffering for righteousness' sake. Neither are we suffering for righteousness' sake when we receive grief for acting as Holy Spirit to our fellow brother and sisters in Christ in areas of Christian liberties. That is called meddling. And Peter warned us against that in chapter 4. And now I want to show you that doing good is something more fundamental than doing deeds that we all generally agree to be good or noble, such as feed the poor or house the homeless. As Christians, we should think of ways to lift up the miseries in our fellow human beings, and they are good, but doing good is something more fundamental than that. When Jesus referred to blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, he's referring to something more profound. The world would not persecute those who do good works or noble deeds. The world only persecute the righteous. The good and the noble are rarely persecuted because we all have the feeling that they are just like us at our best. Jesus taught that the righteous are persecuted because they are different. Jesus was persecuted not because he was good, but that he was different. His acts of righteousness exposed the Pharisees' acts of righteousness to be filthy rags. That was why they hated him and killed him. So in short, doing good or righteousness is fundamentally being Christ-like. So what are the blessings we will receive when we suffer unjustly? We know from Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount that we will have God's kingdom. In our passage today, in the immediate context, we receive the blessing of God's watchful eye or His fatherly attention. If you look uh, in your Bible on uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 12, uh, Peter writes, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And when you study the rest of this letter carefully, you also see that we have the blessings of God's special favor or His grace in suffering. 
You don't have to turn to chapter 2, but I'll read. But if when you do good and suffer, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We will have the blessing of God's presence. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Chapter 4, verse 14. The promises of these blessings in the face of suffering can motivate us to endure in the midst of suffering. And the promise of God's kingdom will fill us with such hope that our lifestyles will provoke questions from the watching world, opening doors for evangelism. Therefore, God does not just bless His children in their unjust suffering, but also purpose that their suffering will be blessing to unbelievers, ushering them into His kingdom through evangelism. Blessings in suffering. And that leads me to my second paradox, fight fear with fear. This is not my day job. I'm a cardiologist by profession. And sometimes, I order stress tests on my patients when I have high index of suspicion of what we call coronary artery disease. And sometimes, some of my patients may not show up for their stress test for various reasons. And one reason could be that they fear the outcome of their stress test. Sometimes, we dread suffering or threat of harm because suffering is a form of stress test. Suffering can reveal what our hearts love through our fears. Our fears communicate what we value is under threat. We are afraid of losing something that we love or treasure. And how we respond to our fears and who we go to to seek comfort and security in the face of our fears, tells us who our functional God is. So you, Peter wrote, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I believe it is likely that he remembered that awful night when he denied Jesus three times. The threat of public ridicule revealed in that moment that Peter feared man and feared the loss of his reputation. Some of your Bible may be study Bible, and you will know that Peter was actually quoting directly from Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 13. And I believe he does that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he wanted to remind his readers and us that they were not the first to ever face threats. The context for, for Isaiah 8 was that the southern kingdom of Judah was being threatened by the alliance of the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria. And they were plotting to remove Ahaz as the king of Judah. And God was commanding his people not to fear them because he is with them and that their plot will come to nothing. And secondly, he also wanted to remind his readers that the best way to overcome their fear of man is to fear God. You can hear, hear me as I, quote the, as I read the direct quotation of Isaiah 8, verse 12 to 13. 
Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. The way to overcome our fear of man is to fear God. Fight fear with fear. Courage should not be mistaken as absence of fear. Foolhardiness is the absence of fear. Courage assumes the presence of fear, and courage is love overcoming fear. It is a mother's love for her child that would overcome her fear of water and propel her to jump into the lake to save her child. When we, culti we cultivate true courage in the face of unjust suffering by nurturing our love for Christ, by regarding Christ as holy or sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, in another English translation. We exalt Jesus, we praise Jesus when we truly treat Him as our Lord and Saviour. And that leads me to my third paradox, finding yourself by losing yourself. One reason for much confusion we see in our nation today is because we are in a fierce battle for identities. There is an ongoing war of ideas as we seek to establish who man is fundamentally. Peter was not fully secured in his identity at one time. And that could be another reason why he denied Christ besides his fear of man. And after his betrayal, he actually went back to be a fisherman again. He thought he no longer had any part in God's kingdom after such a grievous sin. Apostle John recorded a seemingly inconsequential event in chapter 21. Peter had been fishing all night and caught nothing. Jesus came to the scene the following morning and instructed Peter to cast the nets on the right side of the boat. Lo and behold, the nets were bursting at seams with fish. We as readers were probably thinking nothing much of this event, but not Peter. This event was almost identical to an earlier event recorded in Luke 5. You don't have to turn to Luke 5, but in Luke 5, Peter was also out all night and caught no fish. Jesus came into the scene, instructed Peter to let down his nets, and Peter did so catching such a large number of fish that the nets were breaking. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus replied, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. In John 21, Peter knew that Jesus was recommissioning him again into the ministry. Jesus reaffirmed his identity, assured him that his sin, denying his Lord three times, did not disqualify him from his ministry. Peter experienced in, his, in first hand 
that no failure and no sin or nothing can ever separate him from the love of Christ. And I believe over the next 30 years, Peter also learned what Jesus meant when he taught, recorded for us in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life or identity will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Finding yourself by losing yourself. We find our identity when we lose ourselves in Christ. It is no wonder that Peter started his letter by reminding his readers about their true identity. That we are those who have been born again to a living hope, who will receive an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance one day. Because Peter wanted his readers to be as secure in their identity as he was in his. So as an observation, when we are slandered, we generally become defensive because our reputation is being attacked. And when someone reviles against us or insults us, we become angry because our sense of worth and identity is being attacked. Now, if we are secured in our identity, we will not feel threatened when we are attacked. Therefore, we do not have to retaliate in kind. We can give def a defense of our faith with gentleness and respect. When we are secured in our identity, we will naturally be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in us. When we are secured with who we are, we no longer need to seek, we no longer need approval or even seek validation from others. And therefore, we can give a reasonable defense for our hope faithfully without compromise. We can maintain a good conscience or a clear conscience. So in summary, these are the three paradoxes of unjust suffering. Blessings in suffering, fight fear with fear, and finding yourself by losing yourself. I want to spend some time to ask some questions as we seek to apply this passage to our lives this morning. Do we see obedience as blessing in and of itself? Do we seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you? Are we Christ-like? Christ died so that we live. Will we die to ourselves, die to our agenda, die to our self-interest so that others around us may live? Another application do we face our fears and evaluate them? Or do we run from our fears? What do our fears reveal to us about our hearts? And where do we go to seek refuge from our fears? Do we go straight to the Word of God? Or do we numb ourselves with other forms of distraction? Another application. 
are you a gentle person? If you are not gentle in spirit at the slightest provocation, how can you remain gentle when you're suffering for righteousness' sake? Gentleness gives people a living picture of Jesus. I'll share you a quote from an author who wrote the book titled Gentle and Lowly. And here is the quote. Outside of the word and sacrament, the closest thing to Jesus himself that people will get in this fallen world is you. Christians are walking vessels of the gentle love of Christ. Your treatment of others tell them what you really think Jesus is like, whatever you may say you believe Jesus is like. End quote. And one more application. Do we, do we as Christians live a life of hope? Are you living your faithful life openly in the midst of the unbelieving world? Or are you withdrawing from the world out of fear into an evangelical bubble? Let me draw our time to a close. Peter addressed his readers and us as elect exiles. And in truth, there is only one true exile, Jesus. Jesus is the only true outsider who came into our darkened and sin-filled world to live out God's kingdom values in real time and in real flesh. Jesus is so secured in his own identity that he did not have to count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. He was a gentle servant because on the cross, he even prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And at the highest point of his stress in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus overcame his fear with his deep love for his father and cried out, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Because Jesus chose to suffer and obey God, blessings came to the whole world. He suffered unjustly so that we can receive the ultimate blessing to be with Jesus one day with pure, unadulterated joy forever. So for those of you who do not know Jesus, will you come to Jesus that you will have life? Will you come to Jesus to be secure in your identity? If you ask the world, what do we really need today? You will have many answers and many opinions. I believe what our world needs today is little Christs or Christians. Right after Jesus' teaching on unjust suffering in the Sermon on the Mount, he actually went on to describe Christians as salt of the earth. What our world needs is many Christians, many believers living hope-filled life all over the world many Christians who are salt of the earth.
Emmanuel Church, will we be salt of the earth for the good of the many and for the glory of God? And I'll end by sharing another quote from an author. This is the quote. You can be the salt of the earth, the divine flavor of the world, if you experience the renewal of the taste buds of your soul that causes you to renounce all that you have in order to eat the feast of God. Salty people are people who have experienced such a radical revolution in their desires that they crave the kingdom banquet of God's righteousness more than the temporary taste of money or family or praise or power, or sex, or scholarships, or friends, or anything in all creation. When you meet that rare breed of person, you will suddenly discover that all other brands are bland, and that this radical brand alone is the salt of the earth. End quote. Let us go to God in prayer. Father Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you've done for us because of Christ. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus, you came, lived, died, suffered, and resurrected so that we have blessings and that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for you. Lord, may your word continue to conform us to your image that we will be salt of the earth and light of the world for the good of the people around us and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.